so it, yeah, it's a great pleasure to be here. I, I'm, I'm excited about you know the work that that that's to come. Um, there's there's a lot we can do together to uh, make our island more resilient and our and our beaches a lot more sustainable. And I think um, well well you'll see. There's a bunch we can do. So so let's just get started. So you know Surfrider Foundation. Um, it's a wonderful group of people. I think the main thing, of course, is the community that we have. And, you know, it's a great pleasure to be a part of this community. <clears throat> so many great, loving people, intelligent, um, great people to be around. And so, of course, in, these, in this strange time of, of social distancing, it's, it's kind of odd to be um, doing this from home. Um, we were expecting to do this in our normal meeting setting, but, um, you know, here we go. So, so Surfrider, you know, one of the main focuses is, is beach protection in terms of beach access and also um, the beach ecosystem. So in terms of beach access, um, you know, beaches are, of course, part of our way of life and, and it, beaches are our pathway to access the waves and the ocean. And, um, you know, so it's it's kind of fundamental, especially here in Hawaii, that that access to the beach is is a public right that we all should enjoy the access to Hawaii shorelines to the beaches. And you know, luckily in this state, we have a lot of protections. Um, but of course, it, it's up to us as members of the community to make sure, you know, that that these protections that that the law provides um, are being upheld. And and so, you know, there's certain things that, that we as a, as a foundation, as, as a community nonprofit can be on the lookout for. And I've listed a few of these here. Um, locked gates, of course, you'll, we'll go into some of the specific um, areas that, that we've worked on on Oahu, locked lock gates being one of them. Of course, restricted beach hours. Um, is an issue exclusive developments anytime you know there's there's a subdivision of land in in hawaii coastal property you know there needs to be um, public access as part of that subdivision economic barriers yeah that's you know um, inequalities um, on, on the economic side can of course lead to to access issues um, luckily we have a good bus system here on oahu but of course it could be a lot better and i think you know that's that's an that's an area we can look at, and vegetation overgrowth. This is kind of an interesting issue. It's the, uh, one that we're tracking, and I'll get into it with another slide to give you more information. On the coastal preservation side, this is um, an area that that I work on pretty much daily as a coastal engineer, um, dealing with some of the the most um, pressing issues for coastal resiliency in our state and the intersection between the natural environment and, and the man-made built environment. Um, it's a challenging issue, but um, coastal preservation is, is fundamental to our ecosystem health as an ahupua'a kind of system in Hawaii, where we look at you know, the, the natural system from the ridges of the mountains down to, down to the reef as one interconnected unit. You know, we have to understand that beaches play a very important role in that ecosystem function. And the beaches themselves are a natural um, system that is, is often misunderstood 
and um, poorly protected, unfortunately. So in Hawaii, the, the situation has been bad for decades in terms of poor development practices and um, really two narrow setbacks. So building valuable infrastructure um, way close to the ocean and not giving the beach its, its necessary room to breathe. Um, and another big issue that's really gonna play out in probably dramatic ways for Hawaii in the coming decades <clears throat> is sea level rise. And that's just gonna compound all these issues that we're, that we're tracking today. And, and our, I think our list is gonna grow exponentially, unfortunately, as we see kind of the, the negative impacts of sea level rise play out. Another issue I'll talk about here shortly is, is inappropriate shoreline structures. And, and by that, I basically mean seawalls. But um, seawalls can be pretty detrimental to, to the beach, of course, leading to beach loss. And I'll get into a little bit of the reasons why here in the next slide. So in this slide, I, I just gave a few um, kind of images of a, of a beach system. The beach on the left of the screen, this is um, called Pyramid Rock Beach. It's, it's on the um, Marine Corps base in Kaneohe. It's, um, it's a great example of just a complete beach system. So you can see everything from the shore break where you know the sand is being washed up onto the beach, where you then have a wide, sandy, dry beach area um, where people are enjoying and recreating. And then behind that, you have kind of a vegetated berm that leads into a dune system behind that. And the vegetated berm is really the intersection between land and and the beach but it is an important component of a functioning beach system so the berm holds the sand reserve and so um, i kind of think about it as as the bank account or you know recently i've been thinking about it in terms of um, kind of the the immune system if you would of a, of a healthy beach system so if you don't have a a, a functioning healthy vegetated berm and the dune system behind the beach, your beach isn't gonna be resilient and sustainable, especially when we look at the impacts of sea level rise. And the reason that is, is that, that that berm holds the sand. So the wind and the waves push the sand from the ocean up into the berm and it holds it there until it's needed when there's a big storm event where you know we have elevated water levels and we have high waves that wash into that berm. And it's a natural process of taking that sand back from that, from where it's stored in the berm and depositing it, depositing it back into the beach system. And you can see this kind of playing out in these two images I've shown of, of Makapu'u Beach on, on East Oahu. And you know these images were taken two years apart. They're both taken in March. And it just shows you kind of the impact that two different, very different storm systems um, can have in terms of a swell system, um, changing the beach, the beach width in kind of dramatic ways. So you can see the, the picture actually that was taken yesterday on the bottom of the screen, the beach is almost gone, which for Makapu is, is pretty dramatic. Usually this beach is pretty stable. But at this point, uh, yesterday it was, it was almost gone and, and it was exposing all the lava rock beneath it. Two years ago, uh, we had a, a smaller, swell system, not as much energy, and the beach is a lot wider. 
so you know waves and storm systems they naturally change beaches and they'll they'll take this sand and they'll deposit it on the sand bar offshore and you know when the summer comes around it'll then push all that sand back so the issue of course with seawalls and coastal development is a lot of times what they'll do or what they have done in the past is graded over the vegetated beach berms and and the sand dunes and they thought hey look at all this sand this is great material to build houses and roads on well unfortunately by doing so they they impounded that sand and so it's no longer there for the system when the beach needs it to to come back and and to function so it we we can kind of if there's any questions at the end about how beach systems function i'm happy to get into a little further but i kind of like to move on and and maybe get into a little bit more on um, some of the other issues we're tracking on um, one of these issues which is which is an area where i think all of our members can help is um, beach overgrowth so this is this is a little um kind of against intuition or maybe against what i was just talking about in terms of the importance of a of a functioning beach um, berm with vegetation but in some situations where the coastal development is is really close to the beach. You can see these are a couple of images taken of Kahala Beach on Oahu. Um, and these come from, I should say, the Department of Land and Natural Resources Office of Coastal and Conservation Lands provided these images. But it shows an example of, of you know, there, there's a few really nice houses built right next to the beach. And as part of those properties, they have, of course, irrigation um, that's, that's kind of, not it's you know it's it's enhancing the the vegetation and so over time that vegetation can grow out and can cover the beach and in doing so that blocks um, lateral access so we're no longer able to walk down these beaches because of all this overgrowth and no longer able to enjoy them uh, for recreation plus you know the a lot of the the habitat for monk seals and for sea turtles also be inhibited so there's reason for us to kind of keep out, keep an eye out um, if there are situations where kind of landscaping vegetation is overgrowing and it's blocking lateral access um, it's something that we as a chapter can can uh, track and can monitor and can bring to the attention of, of state government so that they can take action now I'll, I'll get into um, some of the the issues that we're tracking and this list literally is growing um, daily so <laughs> so hopefully the um, the rate of, of growth uh, subsides or at least I get a lot we get a lot of growth in volunteers who want to help us with some of these issues <clears throat> but but yeah like I was mentioning I, I think these issues will grow with um, with sea level rise mainly because we're gonna experience more erosion and more conflict between built environment and natural systems. So I'll, I'll start with, um, I should say, you know, this map is, is provided by NOAA. Um, this map shows all the blue points show our public beach access locations on Oahu. Um, <clears throat> what I've done is taken this map, which is over a decade old at this point 
but we've taken this map and kind of identified the, the, the beach issues that we're currently tracking. And I'll get into each one of these kind of starting with the North Shore and working um, counterclockwise around the island and ending with East Oahu, East North Shore Oahu. Um, one thing I want to mention is, is this map, you know, it's a great resource for us to um, track our public access locations. And because it is a decade old, we're hoping that the Surfrider chapter can help um, partner with government agencies or, or other organizations to update this and to keep it, um, keep it relevant as, as these issues progress. Hey, Mike, I don't know if you see the chat, but Lauren Blickley is asking if there are similar maps for neighbor islands. Yes, there are. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't see the chat, so. It's okay, maybe. I'm here for you. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you, Dore. Yeah. So there are there is a map for Maui that was recently updated. And that's actually the GIS layers, I believe, are available. So we can actually use it to produce GIS products. I'm not sure about the other islands though, and it's something that I could certainly help look into. Another question that came up is if there are, if there's Dolan and Mike, versions of Dolan and Mike on neighbor islands. <laughs> yes, there, there are. There's, there's actually very good resources on some of the neighbor islands. So Maui and Kauai both have um, Sea Grant extension agents. And Dolan can probably speak more about that since he's a, you know, a Sea Grant employee himself. But there's, um, there's resources on, on both Maui and Kauai. Um, I'm not so sure about the Big Island, but maybe Dolan can, can speak to that. Um, yeah, just briefly. Um, yes, we do have extension agents through our Sea Grant program on each island. Uh, Hawaii Island, the, there's two extension agents located there, but they're more focused on uh, aquaculture and kind of sustainable aquaculture systems, less so with co coastal management issues that the rest of our extension agents uh, work with. Uh, but I think it's fair to say if you have an issue or a question about uh, something on another island, we'll probably either know about it or know somebody who knows something about it and we can try to find out who knows more about it. So, yeah. Great. So, yeah, and definitely we're happy, you know, if there's any questions at the end um, or want to keep in touch, I've, I've left, you know, contact information. So, you know, feel free to give me an email. Um, so, in terms of how, how I organize this, um, of course, it's color-coded. I like things to be simple that way. Um, so we've gone from, you know, red being kind of the, the situations that are the worst and require kind of our immediate attention. Um, and of course, the, the purple is, is uh, there's a lot of issues that are on our plate and we're kind of dealing, dealing with these all and trying to, to make the right uh, bridges with, with government to track these. And then the green, the green is our is our wins, and of course we're hoping for a lot more wins soon. Um, so, so starting off with the North Shore, this is an issue that we've been tracking, um, kind of w in meetings with the Department of Land and Natural Resources. But this is an example of an illegal seawall construction. Um, this project 
um, this construction occurred in 2017 on um, Sunset Beach. And what happened here is, you know, the, the landowners had a kind of an old concrete seawall. It's unclear if, if that wall was permitted or, or what exactly was the situation, but they had some damage to the wall and they went ahead and um, hired a contractor and dumped a bunch of boulders on the beach. And according to the violation letters um, that I've read that are publicly available, um, you know, they didn't have any permits. And after repeated uh, interventions from, from the state government, you know, they, they continued um, construction. So, you know, this is an example of, of kind of what we don't want people to do, you know, in terms of um, building seawalls on our beaches without any, any permits, any sort of public review period or any environmental um, studies and evaluations, you know, so it, this is kind of a glaring example of, of an illegal seawall construction and, and, a, and a bad example of, of what can go wrong. And I want to just mention here that, you know, this is where we all come in because, um, you know, kind of in line with the question is, is there other, other people on other islands? Well, of course, you know, we're all connected and here we are, you know, on, on Zoom and everyone can be our eyes and our ears out there. And, and if there are illegal activities going on, illegal construction, you can reach out and we can, we can see if, um, if these construction projects are permitted and if, if they've gone through the, the proper um, procedures to make sure that they're, they're legal. Okay, so the next one on, on the list that we're tracking here is Laniakea um, Beach. If, if you're familiar with um, try, trying to drive up to the North Shore, you'll know that this is, this is a traffic kind of congested area where, where, they, where the turtle traffic um, starts. And that's because a lot of people pull over here on the side of the road and they cross the road um, by jaywalking across the highway. And because of the, the traffic snare and the safety issue, the Department of Transportation Highways Division is considering blocking this parking permanently, or at least um, uh, while they try to figure out another, another um, solution. And you know that, that's of course a big issue for all the surfers and all the beachgoers in this area. Um, so it's something that we're hoping to work on a more appropriate solution. So Ho'omana Beach, this is one that has been closed, unfortunately. So this is a beautiful beach. It's, it's um, almost, well, it's, it's very private now, but when it was open, um, it was just so nice to go here. You could park in this little cul-de-sac neighborhood and just take this little access, which you'll see um, is currently blocked. And you could, you could access this nice beach um, with basically nobody there and, and just a great place to take the kids. But currently, you know, the access has been closed, unfortunately, um, partly due to also some illegal seawall construction that really made it quite hazardous. And this is an issue that we're tracking and trying to work with um, the Department of, of Parks and Recreation as well as the Department of Land and Natural Resources to find out if, if there's another solution to access this beach. So you'll see that in this image here on the, on the right, the beach access is, is 
been closed up. There's a gate, there's a bunch of overgrowth. Um, it's actually not even a gate, it's just a fence that's been put up. Um, so there's no way to get there. This is uh, Eva Beach. There's, this is the Marine Corps' um, plan to build a future seawall to protect their long range um, shooting range, which is kind of highlighted there in yellow is, is the location for a future sheet pile wall that's meant to protect a shooting range from future erosion and sea level rise. So this project, they recently did an environmental study um, where they published what they call an environmental assessment to lay out the details of the project. And they, they, they said that, you know, basically the beach in front of the seawall will, will be lost in the future, but they didn't expect any other um, impacts from that. Well, we know that when you build a seawall, not only does it cause, you know, beach loss to the beach in front of it, but it can also have detrimental impacts to the beach on either side. And if you notice to the left of, of the future seawall, there's a, there's a public beach park. There's also a residential neighborhood. So building a seawall here really needs to be considered in a lot more detail. And um, the Wahoo chapter is, is working with Senator Schatz and uh, the community to, to push the Marine Corps to do an environmental impact um, study so that they can look at the, the impacts in more details. Here's a win for us. Um, it's a small one, but it's a good one. Uh, so this, these two gates were uh, erected by the Parks Department, unfortunately, because someone slipped on this seawall, which connects these two public beach parks, the Makalei and the Leahi Beach Parks in Diamond Head community. So someone slipped and fell on this on, while they were walking along this seawall. You can see it gets wet. Um, and they decided to sue the city. And the city in response put up these two gates. Because of community outcry, and you know, which the Surfrider Foundation was involved in, I'm happy to say that these two gates were removed and now you can access the shoreline here. So it just goes to show that you know, if we stand up and, and we make an issue out of these, um, these blockages to our public access, you know, the government will take action. This is one that just came across our plate uh, recently, and I think this is a great example for an area where we could really put some, some resources, work in collaboration with Sea Grant um, and with some of the other, um, some of the government agencies out there to hopefully do a, a good example of a dune restoration and a beach um, restoration project. So these, this coastal dune system, unfortunately, has, has turned into an off-road um, track. So if you're familiar with Sandy's Beach and the Ka'ivi um, location on Oahu, this is just past Sandy's Beach as you're going to Makapu'u Beach. And you'll pass um, these beautiful dunes that are currently just, just utilized for, for these off-road trucks. And they're basically driving through the beach system. Um, smashing the dunes, crushing the vegetation, not allowing things to to expand into a healthy dune system. And so this is an issue that we're going to work on. And I only have a couple more, so I'm going to wrap up here. Okay, so this 
this seawall in Waimanalo is a hundred years old. Um, so it's it's been here for quite some time. And recently the landowner of this property um, published an environmental study because they're planning to expand this seawall. And if you see in front of the seawall, this is a good example of the long-term effects of a seawall. You'll see that there's a beach on either side of the wall, but directly in front of the wall, there's no beach. And if you look back at the historic aerial photographs, you'll see that there used to be a beach system in this location. So as part of that environmental study process, there's a public review period where anybody can write comment letters that the landowner and um, the consultants have to consider before they can publish their final environmental study. So the Surfrider Foundation, um, our Wahoo chapter, submitted an official public comment on this project asking that the landowner consider restoring the beach system as part of this project. So they could potentially um, restore vegetated berm or um, look at you know, other ways to enhance the resiliency of the property, enhance the privacy, but also bring back um, a functioning beach system that once, once existed here. And finally, I'll wrap up with um, the last one on our list today, which is our East Oahu beaches. This is basically a long stretch of coastline all the way from Haula um, to Kualoa, if you're driving from the North Shore down to Kaneohe. Um, our coastal highway is incredibly close. It's, it's literally being undermined into the beach. And for years, the Department of Transportation Highways Division <clears throat> has been doing emergency mitigation measures. This picture shows um, the most current um, attempt at, at temporarily shoring up the highway. And what, what we need here is really a long-term solution that's sustainable, that, that works with nature, and hopefully um, you know, the, the highways division will put a little more effort into a long-term plan. So that, that's it for me. I wanted to kind of wrap it up and, and hand the, the torch over to Dolan because Dolan's gonna talk a lot about Waikiki and the projects. And of course, it, these, these are projects that um, for Waikiki Beach we're tracking as well. And, and we really um, look forward to hearing more of the details from him. But I'll open up now for any questions if you have any questions on these topics. And of course, um, you can always email us at, at beachprotection at oahu.surfrider.org and, um, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Yeah, so feel free to unmute yourselves and ask a question or um, stick it in the chat if you have any for Mike. Anyone? You did such a great job. No one has any questions. <laughs> okay. Well, we're here for you if you want to pop in with a question at any time. Um, we're really, really grateful that Mike's come on as our new beach protection coordinator because we didn't previously have this expertise. Um, 
kind of in the main part of our activism. So we're really stoked to transition from plastics into some of these issues now that we passed one of the strongest plastic bans in the country, we can kind of move on to these super local important things like protecting our beaches for the future. So we have a question, the easement law, what happens when a resident blocks access? Can you share a little bit about that, Mike? Uh, yeah, so, well, easement law, so in terms of, um, you know, for a beach easement, basically, you know, there's, there's lateral access along all of our, our beaches, but then there's also perpendicular access. So that's, you know, access from the public road, basically down to the shoreline. So those, those accesses are both, both protected by public or, or by, by Hawaii state law. The easement law um, basically says that if, you know, I think that what you're referring to is when you, when you make a subdivision of land, if there's not sufficient beach accesses, the, the state requires, or the, the state and the county both require you to, to make an easement, um, to designate an easement that allows basically public access. And so if you block that, of course, that's a violation, um, and it, we can report that to um, to the state and to the county, and and they would basically force whoever's blocking the easement to open it up again. So, um, so it is it is protected under state law. Awesome. And then one of the questions was, what are the criteria? Hi, Chip. <laughs> what are the criteria for beach access issues being added to your list? We don't really have criteria, which is why it's increasing so quickly. But as people send us issues, um, we've been checking in with them one-on-one -on -one and then seeing what the action items are, as long as it relates to our mission. So um, we've been pretty much embracing all as long as it aligns with our mission, which is why we'll need more help from the community. Public road, not private road to clarify. Not sure exactly what you mean there, Divine, if you want to clarify for us your question. So yeah. I have a question. I kept trying yes. to type it in and hitting return, and we kept firing it out to you. And yeah, I just we're happy to see your face. <laughs> hey, Mike, that was really great. I came in late, just as you were finishing up uh, the shooting range at Eva Beach. So there's like decades of lead accumulated in a big dirt berm. Um, did, did you mention that? And you know, what is keeping uh, the Navy or whoever it is from just scooping up all that dirt and disposing of it as they would any toxic waste site? Right, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I think that's probably the solution that they need to, to evaluate in more detail in their environmental impact statement. Um, you know, currently in their environmental assessment, the reasoning for building the, the, the sheet pile seawall was to avoid that lead from falling into the ocean in the future. Um, but, but really, I, I don't think that's justification. As you were saying, there, there are environmental remediation measures that they could follow with, with standard best practices. So, um, 
you know, I think they really need to look in more detail at the alternatives. Yeah, great. I mean, it may ultimately end up being a super fun site, but since it's military, I don't know if they're exempt from that. Uh, but it's a great place to put a giant dune uh, to help feed the whole rest of that beach, which is really narrow. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chip. Um, so Divine says, if it's a private road, like Makanale Street, are residences in a private road required to allow beach access through their property? So can you um, clarify a little bit more about that so people can understand better? Yeah, so there are, there are private beach access pathways and not, these pathways aren't all required to be public. Um, the public ones are designated um, according to Hawaii subdivision law. And, you know, they do have public easements um, in place to allow us, you know, the right to, to transverse and to access the beach. So certain neighborhoods, they do have their own private access pathways. And a lot of them have gates with codes. And there's really nothing we can do about that currently unless, um, you know, unless these neighborhoods go through big subdivision or, or major development projects where their permits kind of can be reevaluated. And if there are areas on the island where beach access is um, limited or there's not enough access, you know, per, per foot. So there, there is a rule in terms of how many access pathways you should have per foot. Um, or, or per, per mile, I should say. And if there are areas where there's just not enough access, I, it is something that we as a foundation uh, can approach the government and, and fight for. So I hope that helps clarify. Awesome. Um, so let's move on to Dolan and then we'll have a longer Q&A after Dolan speaks with everyone. So go ahead, Dolan, if you wanna share your screen. Sure, yeah, thank you. Um, I just wanted to chime in real quick. I posted a website on the chat, if you haven't seen the chat yet. Uh, there's a website in there that our Sea Grant program created. Uh, it's getting up to about 10 years ago now, so it's a bit dated, but um, we had a law student at the University of Hawaii help us with this, doing the, some of the background research on what are the laws related to beach access. So that might help answer questions that people have on why are some public and others not? Um, we did maps at the time and a database of what was public and what's not public access. I'm sure most of those are still um, relevant, but the, it may be a bit dated now. Uh, and the law student that helped us with, with this effort was um, former council member Trevor Ozawa, as a matter of fact. So I thought that was kind of interesting to me working with him prior to him being a council member, he helped us develop that database. So if you go to that, uh, just think about him because he helped us do all the research on it. And it's really important that I think people understand the distinction between um, what are like city owned public access ways. These are typically beach parks or uh, city maintained access ways. And then there are private um, walkways or access ways that are required to be open by law. Those are the ones that get controversial because sometimes people put gates on them. And then there are, in fact, private access ways that are not required to be open to the public. 
and but sometimes historically people have allowed people to use them and usually there's new owners that come in and then they decide not to keep that open that's when things get um, controversial so just know that there's different types of access ways not all of them are public and it's really hard to tell which ones are or are not and so Mike that map you put up will be really important to have that kind of access uh, access to that kind of information in the future so with that um, I'm gonna try to share my screen here hang on one second Go back to zoom um, I've created a presentation here. Um, well, sorry, it's not open now. Hang on one second. I had it open. Okay. But I've uh, created a presentation uh, mostly focused on Waikiki, but um, I'm happy to answer other questions related to this as needed and um, see where our conversation goes. Can everybody see my, uh, my screen there? It should say Waikiki Beach. Looks good. Okay, good. Um, so with that, just maybe a, a quick background because some of you weren't on right when we started. My name is Dolan Eversole. I work at the University of Hawaii for a program called Sea Grant. And um, we, I'm one of an army of extension agents, probably a dozen or so extension agents working in the Pacific region. So we are based here at the University of Hawaii. We have extension agents that uh, have coastal management uh, expertise on each of the islands. But we also have extension agents located in um, American Samoa and Marshall Islands and Micronesia. So we do have a Pacific wide presence. We do a lot of different things. We're probably best known for the work that we do in coastal hazard mitigation, climate change, and just general coastal management. And under that focus area, which actually turns out to be one of our program's focus areas, uh, coastal hazards uh, and climate change, uh, I'm doing a lot of work in Waikiki. So I prepared a presentation for tonight that's really exclusively focused on Waikiki. There's some things happening that I think the membership should know about and we can talk more about in more detail. And I also wanted to mention that I consider this maybe the first of many presentations that I might make um, in this vein of updates for Waikiki. I've done several over the last two or three years, um, but I think there's so much happening in Waikiki right now uh, along the shoreline that it probably warrants an update from myself or someone um, involved with this on a more frequent basis than we've done in the past. So just uh, consider this to be kind of a, a warm up to other um, projects that might be coming. And I, I'm happy to serve as your liaison and resource to not only the, the uh, Beach Improvement District in Waikiki, which you'll learn more about, but also the state uh, as a whole that are managing these projects. So my role in all of this is I'm a coastal geologist trained at the University of Hawaii uh, by the very own uh, Chip Fletcher, who's on our call tonight. So great to see uh, Chip is able to join us. And um, I serve as a extension agent and coastal manager for the Waikiki Beach Special Improvement District Association. I know that's a mouthful. You're gonna hear more about that association. It is an important 
association that works in Waikiki and I'll try to tie together their role in uh, managing Waikiki Beach. So with that, uh, I wanted to provide a quick context to the history of Waikiki and I think this is really crucial to uh, understanding the context of some of the projects that are going on in Waikiki. I'm not going to get into too much detail, but I think it's fair to say that, and hopefully you're all very familiar, that Waikiki has completely transformed from where it was 100 years ago as this quiet, you know, some might say backwater, what was a wetland estuary environment was completely drained and developed into what is now uh, an urban resort district, uh, pretty much the opposite of what it was maybe a hundred years ago. Uh, and the, the nexus for that, the transformation that occurred was um, facilitated by the Alawai Canal. And I have a whole nother presentation I'd love to give another time on what's happening on the, on the Alawai Canal. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions people may have, maybe not any questions, but some questions on that. But it's fair to say that the Alawai Canal was crucial to the creation of Waikiki as we know it now. And um, I wanted to provide this one um, overview map that was um, produced by a local consulting group, uh, Ho'okuleana, so I have to give them credit for making this map really interesting to see the historical um, rivering system and streams that intersected Waikiki uh, prior to the dredging of the Alawai Canal. So the point of this slide is to provide some context that Waikiki looked a lot different than it does now and the Alawai Canal really allowed the drainage to completely change. You guys are all familiar with that, with the history of the Alawai Canal. The Alawai Canal was uh, in fact dredged in about 100 years ago, um, 1921 to 1928. And uh, some of you may have heard that the original plan was for it to be open at both ends. And um, this is an image of what one design, conceptual design would have looked like. Notice that it doesn't come out right at the Kapahulu groin and in fact comes out right about where Queens is now somewhere in between Kaimana Beach and the Kapahulu groin is where the proposed um, outfall would have been. Uh, I'm actually thankful that this was never done because it would have changed the water quality in this area, which is, uh, as we all know, as surfers, an important um, area to recreate now and probably wouldn't have the same water quality that it does now. Um, and the same holds true, and I just picked Kuhio Beach as one example. We could go down the entire south shore of Oahu from Hawaii Kai to Eva Beach and show how dramatically different it is from, say, 100 years ago. But I just wanted to show, as one example, Kuhio Beach, um, how it has transformed from, you know, 60 years ago or so uh, with a transformation of the shoreline here. And what I'll try to show in a series of slides is that what we have in Waikiki now is not in fact a planned development where we had envisioned that it would look like this. It was um, what some might call an ad hoc development and add-on nature where one section of uh, shoreline structures were built in order to stabilize a beach. Uh, this is what the Kuhio Beach area looked like in the 1950s. Notice there was no beach at all. Um, and then as we go through 
a series of um, new groins and breakwaters that were built. Um, it's important to note that none of these were really planned out in a comprehensive way. There were sections that were built in the 1930s and 40s, the Kapahulu groin built in 1951. There were rubble mound groins built sometime thereafter. And I wanted to show an image, a couple images that I came across recently because they're fascinating to me. I hope you find them to be equally fascinating, um, which is uh, this transformation of Cujillo Beach. One element is there was mention in a, uh, an old report that there was a T-head groin that was built in Cujillo Beach. And in fact, I found some images online of that T-head groin, which um, is just to the Eva side of the Kapahulu groin, or was. It was only in place for a year or two and apparently didn't, wasn't very effective. And uh, Mike or any other engineer, or anybody with experience with shoreline structures might be interested to note, I can't really quite tell from this photo this is the only photo I was able to find, but it looks to me like giant concrete drain pipes that were put in vertically as a way to develop or build a T-head groin. So just know that if you hear mention of a T-head groin in Waikiki having failed, this is in fact what it was. Uh, I'm not sure the design rationale or really the dimensions, but it looks to me like it didn't go out quite as seaward as where the current breakwater is now. And I'm not sure why they took it out, but um, it was in place for a year or so. Hey, Dolan, uh, can you quickly differentiate yeah. between a groin and a breakwater? Sure, yeah. Um, it, it, important distinction here, uh, a jetty is something that is used for navigation. So jetties are typically at a channel entrance to a harbor, and those are long. Uh, a groin is a shore perpendicular structure similar to a jetty, but usually much shorter. And those um, jetties are what you see throughout Waikiki. We have a number of, um, I'm sorry, groins in throughout Waikiki, including the Kapahulu groin, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. So any shore perpendicular structure um, typically built to retain sand uh, in a one side versus the other. Those are uh, what groins, and you see a lot of these groins all over the state, including uh, one example is a famous example is Kualoa Beach Park has a series of groins just updrift of the beach park that have um, basically robbed the sediment that would have normally drifted down. The unfortunate side effect of groins is typically they act like dams and they capture sediment on one side and that creates a sediment deficiency on the downdrift side. And so that's maybe not unintended so much or unexpected as much as um, now we know those are some of the impacts of groins. Um, any new modern groin that is proposed has to address that issue directly and they have to justify building a groin um, so that they can argue it won't have downdrift impact and, and how they do that typically is they fill the entire system with sand. And then a breakwater is a shore parallel structure just like you see in Waikiki at Cujillo Beach. Uh, sometimes that's referred to as the slippery wall or the crib wall. Uh, and that's that very low concrete wall um, that is shore parallel that connects to the Kapahulu groin. So you got jetties, you got groins, you got breakwaters, and then I won't even get into all the other types of structures, but seawalls and revetments 
they all serve in a similar way but have different functions. Okay, so moving back into Waikiki, um, I just wanted to provide those slides as context to the, kind of the history and the context of what we're talking about in Waikiki. And the reason for doing that is I'm going to talk about some things that are happening in Waikiki in, in this light of an artificial environment that is completely man-made. So this image you see here is the Waikiki district. It, everything you see there is uh, altered or completely man-made in some way. If you were to look at the former shoreline of Waikiki, it runs uh, quite a bit more Malka than the current shoreline, and particularly in the Hilton area, there was no beach there at all. It was a lagoonal environment. Um, so I just wanted to convey that message that we're working in an environment that is um, highly manipulated and altered already. And so this idea of maybe going back to a more natural state is very difficult to do in a place like Waikiki. What we're talking about as options for a place like the North Shore might look a lot different than the options, the viable options that are available to us in a place like Waikiki. So I did want to introduce this, uh, the Beach Association. They provide funding, or at least in part, provide funding for my position at the university. I don't directly work for this organization, but they do, through an, through an agreement, provide funding for my position. And so I serve as their technical advisor, project manager, and outreach coordinator for the Waikiki Special Improvement District. We simply call it the Beach CETA for short. This is the district, and it is a tax district. And that's important because in assessing uh, a tax to the commercial properties in Waikiki, this association has been able to generate about a million dollars a year. And that money is meant to uh, partner with the state on new projects. And I'm gonna share with you what some of those new projects might look like. This beach district is, uh, it's what's called a special improvement district. It's one of four in the state. Uh, the, other, uh, the others are Fort Deruce, I'm sorry, Fort Street Mall. And uh, there are three other special improvement districts in Waikiki. This district is a little different in that it's exclusively focused on the beach. So we're, while we have an interest and we're doing some activities related to Alawai Canal, we're not doing street cleaning, we're not doing trash cans or newspaper pickup or anything like that where the other improvement districts are looking at land-based improvements. Uh, this beach improvement district is exclusively focused on the beach and is a close partner with the state Department of Land and Natural Resources on pretty much every project I'm gonna share with you from this point forward are state projects that this improvement district is willing to cost share uh, up to 50% of the cost of the project. So that's the context of the improvement district. It is a uh, tax that is assessed to all the commercial properties based on the assessed value of your property. So um, it is already weighted towards the shoreline in that the beachfront properties typically are higher value, so they pay more tax uh, into the special uh, fund, which this improvement district manages. Uh, so yeah, we talked a little bit about that, the public-private partnership. The really the, the main reason, and this actually had to go through uh, city council approval in 2015, so the tax, this special improvement district is five years old now, and um, it um, had to get 
a 50% or greater vote by the constituency in Waikiki itself. So the business community in Waikiki did vote in favor of creating the special improvement district. And I think while only 50% was required, it was something in the 80% range that uh, um, voted in favor of doing this. And so some of those projects um, you may have heard about um, and some of our focus areas for this improvement district include the typical beach restoration, beach erosion. We have examples of infrastructure damage going on in Waikiki. The, the image on the upper right is Kuhio Beach right in front of the Duke Kanamoku statue in uh, 2017 when we were experiencing extreme uh, king tides. And then the rest of the images might look familiar to you with just typical coastal inundation and beach loss. These are recurring themes, not only throughout Waikiki, but throughout the state, if not the world for that matter. But some of the other areas that we're beginning to focus on more are water quality. And this is where I think the Beach Improvement District is gonna align very well with some of Surfrider's focus areas and goals. Um, water quality is really important I've come to my personal realization that having been a beach person for most of my life, uh, beaches are great and they're super important, but if you have junk water quality, none of that matters. You got to have good water quality that goes along with the beach. So you can have great beaches and terrible water quality and they don't balance each other out at all. Um, and one example of that, um, I'm not going to get too much into detail, but we're just wrapping up a public perception survey of visitors in Waikiki and asking them questions about what they think of the quality of the beach in Waikiki. And we show them images like this um, that correspond with larger or narrower beaches and also better or worse water quality and which of, they, which of them they prefer. In trying to get to this issue of uh, what the economists call a willingness to pay, so if you were to associate a value, not that we're gonna to charge to go to the beach, but if you were to give a value to having wide beaches and great water quality, what is that worth to you? So we're working with the Department of Economics at the University of Hawaii to try to address some of those questions um, in a, you know, a robust and um, thorough way. So some of the other things that we've been working on in this uh, special improvement district is we developed a beach management plan for Waikiki. And this provides a more comprehensive vision for what the beach might look like under future scenarios, looking at some of the state um, sea level inundation maps, as well as coastal erosion maps that have been produced at the university. And we've really reached out to our local stakeholders in Waikiki to try to understand what their uh, priorities are on, you know, we can't fix everything. So if we were to focus on certain areas, what would that look like? And the first thing that you might be wondering is um, beach management plan. That sounds great. But um, didn't we already have one for the state's most important beach? No, not until we develop this. We have done a number of beach management plans around the state, but not until last year did we have a beach management plan for Waikiki, surprisingly. So I'm happy to say that we do now have a beach management plan in place for Waikiki is by no means done. It will never be done. It's a living document that will continually be uh, updated as needed, but we have identified some priority projects and some things that um, will hopefully lend itself to improved management of the beach in Waikiki in maybe a more sustainable way. 
Uh, I won't get too much into the goals. You guys can ask questions about that if needed. Um, at, along with the beach perception survey, we recently did an update to a, a prior um, economic study for Waikiki Beach. And um, this is just basically taking an old methodology that was done about 10 years ago and updating it to modern day dollars using modern day um, visitor arrival and room rates. And the punchline here is Waikiki Beach is very valuable. We already know that, but we're now able to put an economic uh, estimate of about $2 billion a year to our local economy. And that is an underestimate. And I can say that with some degree of confidence in that knowing this economic analysis was looking at only the beach itself and the jobs created and the tax revenue created, but it didn't look at um, the aesthetic or natural value value of the, the nearshore resource, nor did it look at the marine resource in any way. So we didn't even look at surfing or any of the stuff going on in the ocean. Uh, so that $2 billion a year, if you were to look at it in a more comprehensive way, is probably closer to $5 billion a year if you were to add up the storm mitigation benefit and other benefits associated with that. Turns out our Sea Grant program is funding a group of economists at the University of Hawaii to in fact look at this very question of if we were to expand the scope into the nearshore resource, uh, what is the economic value of that? And hey Dolan, gets, there's a yeah. question from Matilda. Sure. Um, can you access the beach management plan online? Yes, you can. I'm gonna have a slide here in a second. It is available online. Um, let me just see if I can uh, skip to that here. This is just a, a series of images before I get to that website of what the type of images we showed people on the beach, asking them what they think about the conditions of the beach if it were, say, for example, twice as wide. But maybe you had to sacrifice water quality to get to that. So that's the approach that we took with that beach perception survey. Um, okay, so here I wanted to introduce our advisory committee, but if you were to look at the first part of this website that's shown here, the WBSIDA.org. If you go there, um, you'll see uh, one of the tabs are um, projects, and under the projects is the beach management plan. There's probably a number of things in there that you might be very interested with, including this slide here that discusses our Waikiki Beach Community Advisory Committee. This is probably one of the more important things that we've done as an organization in Waikiki, which was to develop an advisory committee that would help inform the process of developing new projects in Waikiki. So this advisory committee, I won't list all the names, but it really is the who's who of the coastal management community in Waikiki um, and a, a, maybe a, a fair balance of business, government, nonprofit, science, and hotel industry uh, included on this uh, 33 member committee. Uh, I am happy to say that Surfrider is one of those 33 members. Um, Stuart has attended uh, some of the meetings in the past and it's been really critical that we have groups like Surfrider provide insight to um, what we're doing with this advisory committee. And so we've done a series of meetings. We did five meetings over the last three years. So it's not like we meet quarterly. We try to meet once or twice a year and we talk about the future vision of Waikiki, what's important to people, what are some of the things um, that the advisory committee found to be 
um, important, you know, obviously erosion being one of those, but we broke it down into um, sub subsections of what parts of Waikiki even, I think I have a slide here, yeah. So we asked the advisory committee about a year ago, um, <clears throat> since we can't fix everything in Waikiki, and if we were to divide Waikiki up into uh, what we call littoral cells or littoral systems, um, which of those should we focus on? And it turns out really no surprise that the kind of the heart of Waikiki, uh, what we define as the Hale Kalani, the Royal Hawaiian and the Kuhio beach shells were um, our top priorities or the advisory committee's top priorities as far as focusing attention. And no surprise, everybody's first choice was the Royal Hawaiian cell. And that is really an iconic section of shoreline that when you when people see images of Waikiki, it's usually of that area. So we're focusing our attention on um, developing management strategies that address some of the issues there. And we asked each of the committee members a series of questions about what's important to them. What do they see as the number one problem and what do they see as solutions for each of these uh, littoral cells that you see listed on the map. So we have really good detailed information from our advisory committee on what's important to them and what they see as solutions. And that helps um, drive some of the things that are in the beach management plan. Hey Dolan, uh, just, a, just a quick yeah. time check. It's 7.08 and we do want to leave some time for questions. So um, okay. I don't know where you're at, but just wanted to share that. Okay, um, I've got a, a bunch more slides, but maybe what I'll do is I'll just go through the next couple slides because they're important to lay some context and then I can open it up for more questions. And, you know, like I said, I, I consider this to be the first of many. Maybe this is just a, a, a warm up for more detailed um, presentations that we can have in the future. But the one of the main reasons um, I wanted to share information here tonight is there was a state appropriation last year from our state legislature to the DLNR for $10 million. I don't know if uh, how many of you are familiar with that, but that's a lot of money. I'm not sure if I've seen an appropriation for beach improvements um, projects anywhere in the state for that amount. Uh, the closest thing to it would have been work done prior uh, in Waikiki that was maybe a couple million. And that was even cost shared with um, uh, one of the landowners in Waikiki. But this $10 million has been earmarked for beach improvement projects in Waikiki. The beach improvement district has been identified as a uh, public-private partner in that for about $3 million um, of that $10 million. And what those projects ultimately look like um, is yet to be determined, but we have some ideas that are starting to develop for each of those three orange squares that you see listed there. Um, there's projects that are being developed in each of those areas. And when I say projects, some of them do include new structures and redesign of what's there now. When I showed the image of Cujillo Beach with the breakwater and some of the groins, hopefully that provides some context to the history there that it really is an ad hoc uh, type of uh, infrastructure development there where it was never really planned out. And what the state DLNR is attempting to do now um, in partnership with the Beach Improvement District is take a step back and really try to develop a more comprehensive long-term vision for uh, Waikiki. And part of that, what's really critical, I think we've learned repeatedly 
in the past is uh, the state really can't move forward independent of community uh, opinion. And so that is really one of the main reasons for having the advisory committee is to make sure people understand um, what is being proposed, um, what are the concerns, what are some of the challenges associated with that. If there's gonna be problems, we wanna know that early on so we can begin to address it. Um, and I just wanted to go through a couple of quick slides and then I'll open up some questions here. Uh, I wanted to just introduce uh, two projects that uh, one is already done and the other is slated for um, to, to be implemented here almost immediately. The first of which is the Cujillo Beach Sandbag Groin. This is a new sandbag groin that was built right in front of the Dukanamoku statue. It was completed in November of last year, so only a few months ago. Um, and the other project I want to introduce is a replacement groin for the Royal Hawaiian groin that you see there in the uh, upper part of the image. Um, those are both approved projects, funded, appropriated, ready to go. The Cujillo sandbag groin, of course, is already completed. And um, the, the take home here is this is really a new era of improvements in Waikiki. We have, in my opinion, we've neglected Waikiki for way too long. We haven't done any improvements other than just putting sand on the beach for 50 years. And that's fine if you're in a natural state where you can, um, you want to encourage more natural kind of nature-based solutions. Waikiki is very difficult to do those type of approaches. So we're kind of forced with more construction-oriented improvements. The Cujillo sandbag groin is located right there. It looks something like this. Uh, thank you, Chip, for you and your students providing the aerial drone imagery for this uh, slide here. That's what the groin looks like. If you haven't seen it yet, well, you're not supposed to go down there now, but um, maybe once things open up, you can go down and take a look. It seems to be performing very well as designed. Uh, and that foundation that you see in the kind of upper right is fairly well covered most of the time and not completely covered, but it's certainly better than it was before. This is what it looked like soon after the completion of the groin. So nice, stable beach. The summer will be the real test of this groin to see how effective it is at uh, stabilizing this section. And then my last series of slides here, I think this is really important for everybody to understand. Uh, there is a plan uh, approved and appropriated to replace the Royal Hawaiian groin located here. And uh, this is something that's been going through, I think we're on year six of the regulatory review for this. So it's a very long drawn out regulatory process. This has gone through, <clears throat> there were a series of different designs that were considered. Ultimately the state DLNR uh, decided to go with a 160 foot long L-shaped groin. Um, this is what their current site plan looks like. So it's essentially replacing the function of the existing groin that's there now. Um, it won't magically make the beach really much different than it is now, but it should make it more stable, uh, where sometimes we see these large seasonal swings in front of the Royal Hawaiian. Um, that should be stabilized, but it's not going to really, uh, it shouldn't make the beach radically different than what you see now. It's more designed to stabilize what's, what the beach looks like now. Um, this is what the groin looks like currently. And this is what the proposed um, groin would look like. Just keep in mind, it originally it was gonna be a T head. So the part on the right facing Eva is no longer gonna be developed. 
it will just be an L to the left. It's a $2 million construction project. Uh, again, the Beach Improvement District is a cost share partner, 50%. We just delivered a million dollar check to DLNR on Monday. So this project is happening. Uh, and unless there's some other weird injunctions or something like that, um, the plan is, has been to start um, in the fall of 2020. However, this is really what I wanted. The most important thing I wanted to share with everybody tonight is because of the coronavirus shutdown of essentially Waikiki is shut down. There is nothing going on in Waikiki. There's no one on the beach. This is a perhaps once in a lifetime opportunity to do this work without interfering with any commercial activity whatsoever. And so <clears throat> the DLNR is moving forward with They've just issued a contract to uh, a local contractor called Kiwit to build this groin. And the hope is that they can expedite construction to do it now rather than wait till the fall. So um, that'll be something that um, I'm going to communicate as I learn more uh, about the exact timing. It probably won't happen for at least a month, but the hope is that we can get this done while everything is still kind of in shutdown mode. Um, and as I get dates and information, um, I'm happy to convey that information and maybe do another one of these with more detailed um, information as needed. So with that, I've got a bunch more information, but I'll just stop there. And I think there's probably a number of um, chat questions that have emerged. Um, so there's Ray, a couple. I'm not sure yeah, so one, one it was um, if anyone studied or projected the impact on beaches of coral loss, it looks like Chip has answered that. Um, okay. So Andrea, just confirm or, or clarify more if he didn't answer that. The other question is from Arlene. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers is generating a plan. Um, where did it go? A plan for an overall drainage system for the Alawai has your group been involved with that plan and its impact on the beaches and water quality in Waikiki. Also, time check at 717, so quick answers so we can um, respect everyone's time. Yes, of course. Um, I'll try to make it really brief, and each one of these warrants a whole lengthy discussion. But the short answer to the Alawai Canal flood mitigation project is the Beach Improvement District and the University of Hawaii as, as a whole is involved with um, helping to develop some of the plans. It's important for people to understand that the Army Corps plan is by no means a final plan. They are at what engineers call a 30% design stage. So there is still an opportunity to change the plan, um, but crucial to any future improvements or changes to the proposed plan, the city needs to sign an agreement with the federal government that they're willing to cost share the project. Until that happens, nothing, the, the project is essentially stopped until the city and the mayor in our case um, has a draft apparently ready to go, but needs to sign and, and execute an agreement that they were, are willing to do the cost sharing and the maintenance of whatever emerges out of the other end of this project. Um, and some of the, more controversial components that you may have heard something about, including flood walls along the length of the Alawai Canal, um, are, according to the Army Corps, are not set in stone, uh, pun included, and <laughs> uh, they could actually in turn be changed. And maybe those flood walls don't need to be as high or they don't need to be in place at all if, for example, um, 
a floodgate was installed at the mouth of the Alawai Canal that could serve to capture water like a reservoir or drain water and lower the water levels uh, ahead of a storm. So there are a number of things that are happening. Um, probably don't have a lot of time to get into all that detail now, but the takeaway is yes, we're involved and it's by no means a final plan at this point. Um, there's a question, this is going to be last question. There's a question about water quality from Paul, but that's kind of a separate issue. So we won't get into that now. Um, but from Cody, what adaptation strategies would you recommend to hotel owners? And um, how can they protect their investments, strengthen wastewater infrastructure and preserve the coastal environment? Excellent question. Uh, not an easy one to address, um, and I have a lot more to add to this, but I'll simply say that we are working on something to um, actually address that very question. When I say we, I'm, I'm referring to the University of Hawaii. Uh, Chip Fletcher is involved with this with uh, a professor of architecture at the university, Wendy McGurro, myself, and a number of others are involved with a project to develop um, a, some flood mitigation and sea level rise adaptation renderings of what, you know, we have a ton of ideas, but the next step with a lot of these are to begin to draw them out so people can envision what they look like. And that's exactly what um, is starting to occur now as we're beginning to develop not only adaptation concepts, but beginning to put them to paper so that people can understand what an elevated road might look like or what a new seawall might look like or maybe creating wetlands where they used to be in portions of Waikiki and allowing you know, water to come in. I think the short answer is the reality of Waikiki is in the mid to long term, we're gonna need to learn to adapt to and embrace water. We're not gonna be able to keep it out forever. We'll, we'll do our best in the short term, but that will only last so long. So in the maybe 30 to 50 year time frame we're gonna to need to begin to look at um, the functioning of uh, Waikiki as a, a wetter area than it is now. Awesome, okay, well, I do wanna respect everyone's time, so let's um, end the content there. Thank you everyone for joining. It's cool to see some faces of people I haven't been able to hug in a while. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, just a last note, I did input Dolan and Mike's emails in here. So you can reach out to them directly for questions or um, you know, find us on social media or email just to reach out. We got some positive comments. So thank you so much, Dolan and Mike, for providing um, so much expertise and historical information to all of us. I know I'm definitely learning a lot from you all. Um, we'll be doing a series of webinars around various issues. Um, we have some on zero waste living, um, we'll be doing one on the impact to local restaurants and businesses. The next one is going to be on um, oceans and climate change with Lisa Martin um, from Healthy Climate Community. So that'll be next Thursday um, at 5.30 p.m. So look out for that. And we'll be having one um, about one or two every single week. So thank you, everyone. Let us know if you have requests for future topics of webinars and um, I hope we can all hang out again in person, but for now, let's continue to do these webinars and see each other at least digitally. Hey, Thanks, nice. everyone. Appreciate you all. Bye. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you, guys. Bye. <laughs>